all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. Thanks for joining me here today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me in the studio today, I have Dr. Martha Claire Thomas, who is an Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UMMC, and we're going to be talking about PCOS today. And you can always email me, fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Dr. Thomas. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and what you do at UMC. Okay. So I recently just moved back from Virginia. I'm from Mississippi. Um, I actually was an occupational therapist and did that for 10 years before I had my own infertility journey and decided um, after that experience that I was really interested in the field and decided to go back to med school. And um, a lot of years later, I'm <laughs> back here in Mississippi and just really excited to be back um, and feel really honored to be able to help families in Mississippi with their infertility journeys as well. And so what are you doing currently at UMC? So I am um I have just joined a practice um, at UMMC Fertility, so I'm the third reproductive endocrinologist. I've joined Dr. Isaacs and Dr. Rushing, who um, you know have gone before me and have <laughs> welcomed me right into the family. Yeah, very common names in, in infertility here in Mississippi. Lots of, of folks have worked with those two doctors. I know they're very glad to have an additional person on board right. to, to help with that. So if folks are not familiar with kind of the term reproductive endocrinology, What is that? So we help women with a wide variety of endocrine disorders, um, and then we specialize in helping people who are struggling with infertility Mm -hmm. um, to be able to build their families. Yeah. So a lot of times people just think about going, they'll say, I'm going to an infertility doctor, but there's really more to it than just that. Right. We treat a wide spectrum of disorders um, anywhere from infertility to things like uh, premature ovarian insufficiency, um, hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, you know, all of those these. are some words <laughs> some right really there. Big words. Those some, are some big words. <laughs> we treat a wide variety of conditions other than infertility. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, you said you were an occupational therapist before for a long time, for 10 years. Yeah. And you had kind of this this nudge to, to go back and, and focus in reproductive endocrinology. What what was that nudge? Exactly. So um, my husband and I um, struggled with primary 
infertility for a couple of years before we made our way to Dr. Isaacs, and mm-hmm. he actually helped us with our infertility journey and helped us um, to get pregnant with our first child. And, you know, I feel like back then it was really sort of isolating and I felt mm-hmm. alone. And the more I started to talk about it and talk to friends, I realized that there were tons of people struggling with mm-hmm. infertility. And I just got really interested in the field. And you're exactly right. I felt a nudge to go to go back to mm-hmm. med school um, just because I was so enthralled with the field. Mm-hmm. And um, here I am. Here you are. Yeah. You mentioned primary infertility. What does that mean? So primary infertility is um, when you are struggling to get pregnant for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, people have a wide variety of different journeys in this in this field, but um, some people have a hard time getting pregnant for the first time, mm-hmm. and we call that primary infertility. And then some people get pregnant easily the first time, and then they struggle to get pregnant with subsequent pregnancies, mm-hmm. and we call that secondary infertility. Excellent. And really, we want to focus in today on PCOS because September is PCOS Awareness Month. And so it's a a perfect time to have a show kind of specialized around that. Of course, we're happy to take any of your reproductive questions here as well. But what does PCOS stand for? So you're right. This month is PCOS Awareness Month. So um, it's a great topic to have yes. today, um, but PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it's not necessarily a specific endocrine disease, but really a syndrome or a chronic illness that has a wide variety of signs and symptoms, and these can present a little bit differently in every person, but most often people complain of irregular menstrual periods and signs of higher than normal levels of androgens, so that's that's what causes the things, the symptoms that you can see, like acne or abnormal hair growth. Um, and just like any chronic condition, it's not something that we can necessarily cure, but it's something mm-hmm. that we can manage throughout mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say the name is a little bit misleading because the cysts that people talk about are actually follicles, which are normal. But people with PCOS do just have more than a normal number of these follicles. Yeah. So let's let's hang out there for just a second. So I think the word ovarian cyst is something that a lot of women may be familiar with, at least, you know, hearing that term or, or have had an ultrasound and, and the um, ultrasound tech is like, hey, you got a cyst right there, you know, and then the difference between that and follicle. What What is the difference? Yeah. So so follicles come and go every month, and that's part of our normal menstrual cycle. Um, and really, a lot of times when they say they see a cyst on ultrasound, they mean they mm-hmm. see a, a follicle. follicle. Um, and so, you know, it's something that we expect to see mm-hmm. during certain points in the menstrual cycle. And that's normal. We, we want to see that. That lets us know that you're having a normal, you know, normal cycle where you're ovulating a mature egg and um, people who don't have normal menstrual cycles are not ovulating. And that's what's um, a little bit difficult about PCOS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the term ovulation, uh, we use it very frequently, but it, it really is meaning that you're releasing one of these mature eggs exactly. to be fertilized if you so desire to be to result in a pregnancy ultimately that's exactly right and you know you can have just like what you were saying that on an ultrasound you may see you know a a normal follicle that that's there and then there are other conditions that may cause some some different types of cysts and a lot of the times those we never know we have them and they just kind of reabsorb and we never see them and then you can have bigger cysts that may cause you some significant pain or start to twist some things around in there and all that kind of stuff I like to say um, if you can go wrong uh, from a female standpoint I've had it 
<laughs> I uh, one of the worst pains in my life was an ovarian cyst that was just trying to trying to twist, twist that over, twist that over, yeah, and that, that was uh, that was horrible. That yeah can happen. Yes, yes it can. Right. It can happen. So you know, you said that this is not really a cyst per se in polycystic, and that's kind of really a a, a misnomer, so to speak, exactly. for that. Exactly, the name is misleading, and it's you know it's several of these small we call them antral follicles, little small follicles mm-hmm. that um, you know eventually one of those typically in a normal cycle will grow and ovulate, like mm-hmm. you said, a mature egg. But these are these are small cysts that are kind of stuck in this mm-hmm. in this chronic. Um, cycle of yeah, they're not like an, developing they're normally. They're like in stasis. Exactly. It's like they're all asleep in there exactly. and they're not being um, kind of woken up and, and sent out to, to do their job in there. And so some of those symptoms, like you mentioned, primarily it can be that irregular menstrual cycle because if you're not going through all those stages, then you're not going to shed linings like you normally would and that kind of thing that's there. That's exactly right. And I, you know, uh, I'm a primary care person, but that's often one of the things that will bring women in to um, primary care is just something not not right with the menstrual cycle. And is there a particular age that PCOS impacts more? No, not necessarily. So it can impact women throughout their reproductive life. Um, and interestingly, we think that there may be, uh, you know, there are some studies that show that when women are pregnant with female daughters, that there can be some programming in utero. So there can be some programming of the brain in mm-hmm. utero to kind of um, start that process, you know, wow. when you're still a fetus in your mom's womb. Wow. Yeah. You know, that whole kind of emerging field looking at, you know, the the uh, kind of impact on the developing baby as things that happen to mom is such a, a really cool thing to think about that these really things is. start, you know, right there before you're ever outside, it, ever, do, ever doing things that's um, right. that, that things can be impacted that yeah. way. All right, we got a little bit into what PCOS is, but what causes it? So that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) So we know that a lot of different things factor into PCOS, and one of the main things that factors in is genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we see PCOS in families, so we know that there's a genetic component. And there are a, a number of different genes that have been implicated. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, it's interesting to think that we think that the mother's environment may contribute to her mm-hmm. female baby's risk of developing PCOS. Um, but there's also some different environmental factors that play a role. Um, and I always think it's important to understand kind of what should happen in a normal cycle to, to be able to understand the abnormal And so I like to say that the brain and the ovary are always communicating with each other. And in a normal cycle, the brain sends out a hormone that is called FSH, and that stands for follicle-stimulating hormone. And that hormone really does exactly what the name says. It stimulates one of those follicles that we were mentioning to grow. um, And as that follicle grows inside, that follicle is an egg that matures. And so as that follicle grows and the egg matures, it produces estrogen. And once that estrogen level gets high enough for a long enough period of time, that sends a signal to the brain to release a hormone called LH, which stands for luteinizing hormone. And with that LH surge, um, the follicle ruptures and the mature egg is ovulated. And then after that follicle ruptures, it forms a structure called the corpus luteum, which produces high levels of progesterone. And so that corpus luteum lives for about two weeks. Um, And if a pregnancy doesn't occur, the, the corpus luteum dies and that progesterone 
drops and we call that the progesterone withdrawal and that's when you have a menstrual bleed. So in PCOS, um, well, in a normal cycle, these hormones are increasing and decreasing, you know, based on the signaling between the brain and the ovary. And in PCOS, instead of having these hormones fluctuating like they do in a normal cycle, they stay in more of a steady state. And so all of these little follicles are producing a little bit of estrogen, but it's enough so that the brain doesn't send out as strong a signal of the FSH. And so you never get that follicle to grow and mature, and you don't have that LH surge that causes ovulation. And this is why women have irregular menstrual cycles, because they're not ovulating regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also know that women with PCOS generally have an increased LH concentration. So they have higher levels of this LH hormone. And this is the LH is is known to stimulate the ovary to produce testosterone, which is what causes some of the symptoms of hyperandrogenism that we see, like the acne and the abnormal hair growth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that was, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, a lot of hormones in play that are, um, you know, do a lot of things regularly. But if one of them kind of gets gets off, then you can see the cascade of those things that that come down. So before we get into uh, those symptoms that you were mentioning, we do have a caller on the line. So we will go down to Mobile and say, good morning, Erin, how can we help you? Hi, um, I was just curious uh, if, if the doctor could expound a little bit on, um, I've had friends that have struggled with some fertility issues, and either by word of mouth or doctors or friends have told them to go volunteer in like mid units or nurseries and, and rock babies, um, and then they're able to get pregnant. Um, I'm, I don't know if there's like a hormone surge or if the body reacts to the fact that they're holding a child or something takes over, but I was wondering if the doctor could, uh, could maybe touch on or talk a little bit or if you have any experience or um, with that. Um, and and I'm, I, too, am an occupational therapist, so... Oh, cool. Oh, hey. yeah. <laughs> cool. I, uh, well, I'm an, excuse me, I'm an occupational therapy assistant, but um, and I also have thought, I have also thought about going back to school, but uh, so you're an inspiration. Thank you for helping everybody, and... Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. That's such kind words. Um, I'm actually not aware of anything in particular that, you know, being around babies, you know, stimulates any changes in, in hormones that that can help with pregnancy. What I would imagine it is, is the stress, right? So we do know that, um, you know, focusing in on a task and kind of almost distracting the mind as well as volunteering, which is what you're doing in this particular case, is good for mental health and good for circulating stress hormones and all of those different kinds of things. So I'm not aware of any, you know, just like um, Dr. Thomas said, any kind of specific study that's looking at changes in any of the, um, you know, LH, FSH, those types of things. But it may just be the reduction in stress that comes along with that that allows some of the things to kind of kind of reset and allows nature to to take back over yeah, there. That's a good point. That would be um, what my lifestyle uh, brain is saying is would be the reason for that. But I will do some additional digging, Erin. That is a wonderful question. If I come up with anything um, more more scientific on that i will be sure to bring it up in a future show all right thank you thank you so much erin have a good rest of your day all right you mentioned um 
that the ovaries kind of get stimulated to make more testosterone, which we tend to think of as as the male hormone type thing, um, and that that is responsible for some of the symptoms that we see with PCOS. What types of symptoms would that be? That's right. So um, people generally complain of things like acne or mm. um, abnormal hair growth, and that can be you know hair growth on on your face or on your abdomen, mm-hmm. or it can also be. Um, more like a, a male pattern balding, like we call it temporal balding. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the the most common things we see with with testosterone excess or androgen excess. Yeah, hair where where it's supposed to be is not there, and then hair where it's not supposed to be, you start to get some there. Exactly. And you know, again, if we want to stick with that kind of mental health piece, that's a, a big um, component of what I see when ladies come in is they're so distressed from an emotional standpoint that they're growing hair on their face, you know, and having, because it's not like the fine little peach hair, you know, peach fuzz hair that we have. It's looks like like male type of hair. It's often thick and coarse and dark and those kinds of things and can be embarrassing for a woman. It can um, impact their self-esteem and those types of things. And, you know, what I try and, and work with them on is, there's not anything you did exactly. that that is has led to this you know and there's and it's it's these hormones that are are out of balance and then we can together working with specialists get some treatment for this and get these things um you know taken care of or reduced or improved uh and then also bringing in um uh, you know, our dermatology friends as well and getting on the best treatment for those types of things, the best way to remove that hair without irritating the skin more. Because exactly. a lot of times people are going to try and shave it, right, mm-hmm. which can be done correctly, but not the same way you shave your legs. We got to do that a little bit differently or we might ir- irritate the skin on our face a little bit more, right. those types of things. And then you can also have more acne, right? That's right. So yeah, we think of testosterone as, mm-hmm. as being the cause of um, of that um, you know increased acne, and you know one of the we'll talk a little bit more about treatments mm-hmm. later. But one of the things that we typically have seen is that sometimes doctors will put you on birth control pills, mm-hmm. which helps to decrease something called sex hormone bind, or sorry, helps to increase the sex hormone binding globulin, which kind of binds up that excess testosterone and helps with the symptoms that mm-hmm. you see of the acne. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, treating someone uh, with PCOS is a multidisciplinary team. You it know is. I mean? There's really you know, your, your reproductive specialist, your, your endocrinologist, dermatology, a really good primary care provider that understands what's going on with those types of things. Uh, And then from a lifestyle standpoint, you know, things that can help support um, better sleep and improvement in fatigue and those kinds of of symptoms, because those are all rolled into it, too. You know, just kind of that that blah feeling, you know, you can't really put your finger on it, but you just don't feel well. Exactly. Um, I often see ladies who come in and they are just having trouble losing weight. Right. And most ladies that are listening right now is like, that's me. That's me. Right. Um, but, it, you know, it can be more difficult to lose weight or just kind of plateau, you know, where you just um, the things that you've always been doing to lose weight or to maintain your weight in the past just are not as effective as they used to be. And again, that ramps up into how you feel about yourself, right. your self-esteem and, and all of these different um, components of overall well-being that 
are part of a much larger syndrome. Right. And we do know, too, just speaking about the weight gain and, um, you know, we know that many women with PCOS have insulin resistance, Mm -hmm. which just really means that insulin has less than normal effects on the cells that are responsible for taking up the glucose. Um, And what causes that in women with PCOS is not entirely clear, but we do know that um, there are defects in the receptor of insulin and the signaling pathway. And so they have higher levels of insulin of insulin circulating in their mm-hmm, blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can contribute to some of the hyperandrogenism that we see as well. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, if you're f- not familiar with that term insulin resistance, it's often what is driving things like prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. Because, you know, the way I like to think about it is you have to have blood sugar, right? Like you would you would die if you didn't have you know, sugar, glucose in your bloodstream and being taken to the different parts of your body to be used by your brain and your muscles and all these different kinds of things. But the way that it gets from the food that we eat into these muscles to be used is a function of insulin. Insulin helps open the door to let that sugar into the cell for then it to be used. When we have insulin resistance, it's like someone has changed the lock or there's something stuck in the lock. And so when the insulin gets there, it's trying to open the door and it just can't. And so the body's natural response to that is going to be, let me send some more insulins to try and just beat the door down. Exactly. (laughs) And so you get that high circulating insulin level. And one of the things that happens when our insulin is high is that we, we get hungry. Uh, And, you know, so then we're hungry, we're sad, we're not losing weight, you know, there's all these things wrapped up together. And so there are medications that can be used to help with insulin resistance. From a lifestyle standpoint, there are a number of things that can be done. Um, You know, one of my favorite things to do with folks is just add in um, a little short bout of exercise after mealtime to make those muscles start to to try and force um, the uptake of some of that sugar a little bit. Um, And a lot of times people say, well, I don't have time to exercise. And I hear you, right? But instead of trying to find that big chunk of time to exercise, just you know, five minutes of some some chair exercises, some calf raises, some little mini squats, really kind of helps um, helps those muscles take up that that extra sugar and, and decrease that insulin resistance there. And then if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I love sleep and sleep's role in the body. And sleep is foundational in addressing insulin resistance. Um, When we don't sleep well, either from a duration standpoint, so less than seven hours, um, or it's poor quality sleep for whatever reason. Maybe we're waking up a bunch of times for um, pain, go to the bathroom, just noise in the house, or you have a sleep disorder like restless leg or sleep apnea. Um, it really does drive that insulin resistance up. And then people blame the carbs a lot, too, um, all for insulin resistance. And not all carbs are created equal. Right. Uh, <laughs> there is a difference between um, uh, fruit and Fruit Loops is what I <laughs> usually say. Um, not that Fruit Loops can't be enjoyed as part of a balanced diet. They absolutely can. Um, but when looking at insulin resistance, we really want to look at those free fatty acids that are circulating around in the body. And so looking at um, where our fats are coming from, whether they're naturally occurring or added, and whether they're saturated or unsaturated, and then where our carbs are coming from. Are they refined added sugars or are they whole grains and 
fruits and vegetables there really can be powerful in starting to address insulin resistance. Is that something you see as well? Yeah, that's exactly right. And just kind of, you know, going along the lines with the PCOS, we know that, you know, women with PCOS have higher levels of LH that stimulate increased testosterone production from the mm-hmm. ovary, but also the higher levels of insulin in the blood can can stimulate the ovaries to produce more testosterone. Yeah. So it's sort of like this a vicious cycle. Double that, whammy. Yes, exactly. Double whammy, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, it can seem daunting when you hear that. There's so many metabolic things going on that are contributing to this. But, you know, now that we have an understanding of, of what it is metabolically that is happening, there are new things that can be done to help with that. There are old medications that can be used to help with that. That's right. And, you know, it really does, you don't have to go through this alone. You know, reach out to your primary care provider, your OBGYN, you know, whoever you feel comfortable talking with and letting them, you know, kind of know about these things that you're having. Before we go to the next break, you know, when would be like the time that uh, that someone should approach their healthcare provider for help for this? You know, is it like they've had a couple of cycles of irregularity or does it need to be going on for a certain amount of time? Yeah, so we think about um, as far as infertility, if a woman is less than 35, you know, a year of mm-hmm. trying and being un- unsuccessful mm-hmm. and conceiving on your own is is technically the definition of infertility and when you should reach out to an infertility specialist. But Anytime you have irregular cycles, there's there's a reason for that. And so, you know, I don't we always tell people you don't wait a year when you mm-hmm. when you're having irregular cycles. Mm-hmm. We don't you know, we don't re- require or request that you wait that long mm-hmm. before you come in to see somebody. Um, so really, anytime you are having irregular cycles, I think it's important to let your primary care, or your primary OBGYN know that so that they can do a little bit of investigating mm-hmm. and figure out what's going on with you. Yeah, absolutely. Would this be something where people or ladies had a normal menstrual cycle at some point in time and now it's become irregular or is it have always going to been irregular? It can go either way. So um, sometimes, you know, usually when when adolescents start having menstrual cycles, they are irregular for Mm -hmm. up to a year, just for, you know, while that Getting the kinks while worked that, out. Exactly. While that <laughs> axis is maturing, it takes some time for, for that to mature. But, um, you know, some women say, I've I've never had a regular mm-hmm. cycle. I've always been irregular. And then others, you know, maybe have had a regular cycle for years and suddenly um, they start to have irregular cycles. So mm-hmm. it can really go either way. Yeah. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, here with Dr. Martha Claire Thomas, and we are talking about PCOS today. All right, we're talking PCOS. We've talked a little bit about what some of the symptoms are and kind of the science behind what's going on. How do you get diagnosed with this? Because a lot of these symptoms seem kind of vague and like they could be parts of of other conditions going on is it something that women struggle with getting an accurate diagnosis well that's exactly right so it is important because there are a lot of other conditions that can sort of mimic pcos or cause menstrual you know irregularities Mm so um, it is a diagnosis of exclusion so we want to rule out conditions um, like hypothyroidism or high levels of prolactin in the blood that can cause some of the menstrual irregularities. And there are a few other conditions as well that can mimic PCOS that we can rule out with certain blood tests. Um, We do use something called the Rotterdam criteria to diagnose PCOS. And so to get a diagnosis with this criteria, you need to meet two out of the three of these 
um, following features to meet the to, or to have the diagnosis. Um, and the first is irregular periods. So, um, you know, people who are not ovulating regularly are going to have irregular periods. And then second is the high level of androgen. So that can be, um, you know, clinical symptoms that you can see, like the abnormal hair growth or the acne, or it can also be, you know, we can check testosterone levels mm-hmm. through the blood or androgen levels in the blood. Um, and then the the last criteria is a certain appearance on ultrasound of the ovaries. So we see lots of those little follicles that, um, you know, are people have called cysts in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and and typically it's they're sort of um, arranged around the periphery of the ovary. So around the outside of the ovary, you may hear people say it looks like a string of pearls mm-hmm. on ultrasound. And it does, it does in fact look like that. Yep. Uh, I, that's like, I remember it clear as day when they <laughs> taught us that in nursing school, right. <clears throat> they put the picture up there and I was like, well, that looks like that ovary is wearing a necklace <laughs> because it does have just the, you know, the little round, um, follicles around the outside looking like a string of pearls around there. Right. But do you always have to have that? So no, you just need two out of the two out, out of the three. three. So actually, if you come to us and you say, you know, my periods are irregular and I'm struggling with this acne that I've mm-hmm. had for years, then that two out of three, that gives you the diagnosis before we even look up on ultrasound at the appearance of the ovaries. Let's talk for a second about what we mean by irregular periods. Like what is that you skip a period or the flow is different? What What is that? Right. So um Really, it's people say I've skipped a period or I may go months without a period. Mm -hmm. Um, A a cycle is normally about 25 to 35 days apart. And so if you aren't able to predict when you expect to have your period, you likely have an irregular Mm -hmm. cycle. Um, Sometimes people do complain of sort of some intermenstrual bleeding as well, where they're having a little bit of that kind of dark Mm -hmm. spotting. Um, So that that is is not regular either. So Mm -hmm. um, it can be, you know the type of bleeding you're having and it can more more frequently it's the duration between cycles and you know other than you know if you're trying to to get pregnant not ovulating and not having regular uh, menstrual cycles is an issue but outside of the fertility piece is it dangerous to not have a menstrual cycle so anytime you don't if if you go for an extended period of time like months without a period we worry that your your lining is thickening and you're not completely shedding that lining and you can develop something called endometrial hyperplasia which can eventually develop or turn into endometrial Mm -hmm. cancer so that's our that's our big concern with not ever having a period Um, and that's different than you know for instance if you're on birth control pills and you're you're not having a period because you're on medication uh, because you're you're with the with the medications that you're taking pressing that lining you right? are exactly you're not having that thick lining build up um, and you're you're having exposure to progesterone mm-hmm. which is it's helpful in preventing endometrial hyperplasia okay so let's say we've gotten a diagnosis of PCOS how do we start to move forward from that and treat that okay so I think, you know, the most important thing always to start with in any chronic illness or chronic disease is lifestyle modifications. Um, Preach it to the choir. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> which is your, your forte. Yes. So, um, 
I always say, you know, maintain a healthy weight. If you are overweight, even a small reduction in your weight, as little as 5% Mm -hmm. can result in significant improvements in your reproductive function. So adipose tissue or our fat cells produce a type of estrogen that can also tell your brain to send out lower amounts of that FSH hormone. So by reducing that feedback to the brain, you can help to restore normal menstrual cycles. Um, So I always tell people, you know, you should have a healthy diet, include whole grains, fruits, vegetables, vegetable based protein. Um, Try to get good sleep, try to get seven and a half to eight hours of sleep a night. Try to manage your stress the best you can and then avoid things like toxins and chemicals. Um, And so those are sort of things that you can do on your own, um, Mm -hmm. you know, without seeing a doctor mm-hmm. or you can come see me That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know i want to kind of hang out there on that five percent weight loss for a second because that is really manageable for right. a lot of folks right. you know when we think about if you're overweight or in the obese category um you know a lot of times you'll look up what my ideal body weight is supposed to be and it may be 50 60 70 80 pounds away from that and that can be very discouraging um that's also when done correctly you know if you want to lose that amount of weight when done correctly it takes it takes a long time to, right. to do that in a, in a sustainable way but if we're talking about a five percent reduction in body weight let's just say 200 pounds for you know ease of of my math brain on this Monday morning, uh, you know, 10% of 200 is 20, 5% is, is 10, you right. know, so 10 pound weight loss um, at a rate of, you know, a pound or so a week. So we're talking over three months, 10 pounds. I can almost see the relief on people's faces when I break it down for them like that. They're like, oh, I can, That's I can manageable. do that. Right. Like exactly. I, I can do that. Um, and, you know, what I tell them then is you know, once we get there, once we've lost that 10 pounds, we just want to ask ourselves, how do I feel? Do I, am I happy? You know, is my quality of life better? You know, is my menstruation better? Am I comfortable with where I am now? And if you are, hot dog, we have, we have gotten where we want to be. If you want to set a new weight loss goal once we get there, then we'll do that. But it's, it's all about building your confidence and being able to do these things and really just like nibbling, nibbling away at it. Exactly. Like one little, one little bite at a time there. Right. Start on those small. Particular, yeah, start small. Um, it, it truly is a, a journey. And there may be days where you, you go back a little bit and you gain a pound or two. And that's that's OK. It's about the, the trajectory that we're trying to to, to kind of land on. So aside from lifestyle modifications, which I would make sure that people realize when we move to medications, it's not like that we forget the lifestyle piece. It's <laughs> not right. like, well, that didn't work, so we're just not going to do that anymore. It's always lifestyle plus um, medication if we're going a med route. You mentioned birth control pills before, oral contraceptives. Um, tell me a little bit about those because those can be people can be a little stressed out thinking about having to start a, a birth control pill, especially if they're like have been desiring pregnancy. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, you're exactly right. So treatment options really are going to depend on your goals. Um, if you are trying to regulate your cycles, um, but you don't want to get pregnant, then your doctor might start you on birth control pills. And that can help to regulate your cycles, but also um, it increases that hormone that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. sex hormone binding globulin, which can bind up some of that free testosterone that's floating around in your blood. And um, so that helps to decrease symptoms of the excess androgens and the, you know, the extra hair growth and the acne. So um, birth control pills, you know, can kind of kill two birds with one stone mm-hmm. if you're not trying to get pregnant. But, yep. but you're right, that 
hearing that is stressful for people who are trying to get pregnant. Um, And so I always tell people who are trying to get pregnant if they have irregular cycles, it's really important that you seek care sooner rather than later, because if you're not ovulating regularly, it's it's going to be difficult to Mm -hmm. get pregnant. Um, on your own, at least. Um, and so we have, you know, different oral medications that we use when people are trying to get pregnant that um, that can help you to ovulate. Uh, there's one called Letrozole and another medication called Clomid that can help you ovulate. And like I said, there are oral medications um, that you take, you know, as prescribed by your doctor. They, they both work a little bit differently, but essentially they are decreasing the amount of circulating estrogen, and this um, stimulates the brain to send out a stronger signal of that FSH, which can help you to recruit a dominant follicle and to ovulate a mature egg. Um, and if you're trying to get pregnant, of course, it's always important to be taking a prenatal vitamin with mm. folic acid. Absolutely. And really, if you're of childbearing age, I would recommend that multivitamin with folic acid just just in just case. In case. Just in right. case. Have a little background floating around in there. That's right. I want to spend this last little bit of time, you know, talking to that that person who may be apprehensive to, to reach out for help. And, you know, the, the fear of the unknown is real. And, you know, what is an appointment with a reproductive endocrinologist? One, how do you get how do you get one, right? And I'm going to tell you how you get one um, with Dr. Thomas or with one of her partners here at UMC. But how do you get one? Where would you find one? And what does a visit look like? Right. So, yeah, um, I would always say, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if you are trying to get pregnant, seek care sooner rather Mm -hmm. than later, um, just so that we can kind of get the ball rolling and help you help you get going towards your goals. Um, A visit with us would look like coming into the office. We do, um, you know, in-person visits. We also do um, visits via Zoom or mm, telehealth. Um, telehealth, exactly. Yes. So um, we, we, you know, in the office, we like to do a full history, get, you know, get to know every everything, you know, as far as your medical, surgical history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we want to know all about your menstrual cycles and how, how old you were when you started and how often you have them. And, you know, uh, we get lots of details about that. And then a physical exam. Mm-hmm. And then um, we may do some blood work to mm-hmm. rule out, you know, depending on your history, rule out different things that could, like we said, mimic some other conditions. Um, and then there's different ways that we may assess the, you know, the uterus and the ovaries. We may do an ultrasound. There are different tests we can do to to determine, you know, if, if that may be a problem. Um, I think it's important always to mention, too, with any infertility, we like to, you know, do a semen analysis because about about 50% of the time there can be a problem with the sperm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of where we start, just gathering information. And then your doctor can make a, you know, an individualized plan for you based on the findings that mm-hmm. That are in your in your history and your lab work and your physical exam. Yeah, and so if you're you know, if you're looking for someone, it's never wrong to start with either your regular gynecologist that you are seeing for your routine women's health needs, or your primary care provider. They can absolutely make a referral and get that set up. Sometimes, um, even start to do some of that basic lab work, you know, like I will usually do things like thyroid, um, you know, just to make sure we don't have a hypothyroidism going on. You mentioned prolactin, sometimes we'll order that. Um, Just some kind of basic stuff so that when uh, you get to that appointment, the specialist kind of already has a little bit of information on board and, and knows what has already been done. 
just to kind of get the ball rolling, kind of expedite that situation a little bit there. Um, if you're interested in seeing someone at UMC with one of the fertility docs there, um, that is always an option. And there's a great website on UMC's website that has more information about UMC fertility. But that number is 601 984 should you choose to want to see Dr. Thomas or one of her partners there? Is it um, that kind of initial visit? How much time do people usually need to budget for that initial yeah, visit? Because yeah. it sounds like it could be a lengthy one. Um, yeah, so we typically uh, see patients, you know, in the afternoon, later morning and afternoon. Mm-hmm. We typically do more of our ultrasound monitoring first thing in the morning. Um, but it's usually a 30 minute visit. Um, you know, face-to-face mm-hmm. visit and then of course a lot of stuff going lo- on in the background exactly a lot of follow-up afterwards mm-hmm. um, yep. but typically about a 30-minute visit is mm-hmm. is what we what we do yeah and you know folks may go well that's not long enough the amount of work that that you guys are putting in on the back end of pulling records and reviewing records and reviewing lab results and ultrasounds and all these different kinds of things is rather lengthy to um to truly try and get to the the root of what's going on right and you know i think sometimes um, folks may feel like they're going to be pressured into one treatment over another. And I loved what you said about being an individual plan, right? That right. it's going to be something that you develop together. Exactly. And I, I, I stress that to patients, you know, every time I see them, this is not me making a decision for mm-hmm. you. This is me giving you the information and then we make a decision together that's right for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tell patients um, when we're working on lifestyle stuff, um, you're in charge. Right. Right, Like my job is to provide you with all of the um, correct information, all of the evidence based information that we know. And then listen to what your desires are, what your needs are, what it is you're trying to accomplish. And then uh, work together to build a, a plan that you're one comfortable with you know that that's the primary thing is you know this is a, a hard condition to to be dealing with right. um, especially if you're trying to have a baby you know there's so many emotions wrapped up in that um so really something that you feel supported in and comfortable with moving forward whether that is you know trying lifestyle modifications first whether that is going straight to lifestyle plus a medication whatever that is you gotta be you got to be comfortable with that. Exactly. 100% agree. Yeah. So if you know, if we have listeners out there who are just, you know, still apprehensive about uh, maybe reaching out about this or they've, they've seen folks before and just nothing's getting better, right. you know, what would you say? Well, I, I, I like to tell people that you have to advocate for yourself. So, you know, if you are seeing your primary doctor and you feel like you're not being heard, then you need to seek care elsewhere um, because there is somebody out there that that you know is willing to help you and wants to help you to meet your goals. Um, and another thing I just want to mention is that it's it's important you know even say you're trying to get pregnant and you come see us and you have a diagnosis of PCOS. Um, it's important that you let your primary care doctor know that because you do have a risk of developing things you know later in life like diabetes, mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease, or or endometrial hyperplasia that we mentioned earlier. So it's important just, you know, that you advocate for yourself and that you 
make sure that your primary care doctor knows that that is a part of your medical history so that they can screen for things like that. Absolutely. You know, anytime I have someone who comes in with PCOS, my, the first thing I go is, what are our triglyceride levels? <laughs> like, I always want to know what our triglycerides are, because we can attack that from multiple angles to try right. and lower that, um, which also helps with the insulin resistance piece. So again, kind of in a cycle there. That's so right. I agree, you know, don't think that that's just a, a women's health issue and you don't need to discuss that with your primary care provider. Um, we want to take care of the, the total picture there. So make sure that um, you know, you're sharing those things across across specialties so that we can truly be a team to take care of you um, for, for the long haul, because that's what we're here for, is right. to take care of you um, at all stages of, of life. So today went by quick. It always does. It was a wonderful time talking about um, these topics related to PCOS. If you didn't get your question into us, you can always email it to me. That email address is fit at mpbonline.org. Healthy and Fit is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. And I've been your host, Josie Bidwell. Thank you so much to my guest, Dr. Thomas. Thanks so much for having me. Be sure to tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup, and never miss an episode by downloading the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.